Ephesians chapter 4. Let's, uh, again, let's just continue to pray to lift this up to the Lord. Father, we pray now, open your word to us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that understand as, as we discern the times that we live in. As we look around and sometimes bewildered, sometimes dismayed, often shocked. We pray, Father, that you would minister your truth to us this morning. That by your Holy Spirit, we would walk out of here with greater understanding, with a greater knowledge, Lord, with greater application to our lives. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome again. Uh, welcome to you who are online and uh, to you who are here. What a blessing to gather and to worship uh, together. As I mentioned briefly before getting started this morning, I was in my study yesterday and was uh, preparing for part two of The Giver and the Gifts, and um, I was just troubled in my spirit and, and just troubled about the things that I keep seeing in the news, and I began to look and uh, just sense that the Holy Spirit was directing me to address these things from God's word and uh, to share some things with you guys from his word. I was talking with Brian before the service. We were talking about how, yeah, in some ways these are unprecedented things, but they're, they're, they may be unprecedented in our lives, but these are not unprecedented events. Um, history, Bible history has recorded things of this nature before. And there's wonderful instruction from God's word. As I studied in Ephesians 4, I sensed the Lord directing me to Jeremiah chapter 12. We're going to spend the bulk of our time there. We're going to start here in Ephesians 4 and and look at and, and kind of pick up the flow and the context of what's going on here. Uh, and remember, it, we looked at Verse 7, last week, he says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then verses 8, 9, and 10, the Apostle Paul goes into talking about uh, that, that he descended, that he ascended, but then that he first descended, talks about to the lower parts of the earth, but you could also render that a different way that he came to the earth. And we looked at two interpretations of that passage, one being that he came and he emptied Sheol, or Hades, the abode of the dead. First Peter 3 is pretty clear on that, that he came and made proclamation. He didn't give the gospel and give people another chance. That's not where it's at. But that, that he did come and that he led high that host of captives. Reasonable, biblical, yes. Was it what Paul intended here? I don't know. The second interpretation would be to look at that as though it's a reference to the incarnation itself where God became man, took the form of a man and came to this earth, that he descended to this earth, performed the work of rescue and redemption on our behalves and offers salvation now to any who would come, opening the way for him to now fill all things and to give gifts to men. Either way, the point that Paul's making in here is that he is coming to gift and equip his church. Uh, he works in us through the distribution of gifts that he gives to men. 
Now, as we look at this section here, we're going to pick it back up and go into part two of the giver and the gifts. Last week, we looked at the giver. We will begin to look at the gifts, and we're going to branch out into 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Romans chapter 12, finish up here in Ephesians chapter 4 as we finish this series, but we're interrupting the series today because I believe that there's a relevant, pertinent message that the Lord has for his church. As we look here in Ephesians 4, we see that uh, Paul doesn't, he doesn't list specific gifts here. We'll go into those, as I mentioned, next week and, and on, but he lists four offices for the church, four offices that are, you have to be gifted to occupy that office, understand that, but they're offices of church leadership. And then he goes into why. Again, we're going to go, I'm going to start in verse 7 and I'm going to jump right to verse 11 and you'll see the flow there taking out the parenthetical statement that he makes about ascending and descending and all of that. He says, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he himself gave some as apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying or building up, that's what that means, of the body of Christ. Uh, one of my mentors, uh, Chuck Smith, a guy that founded the Calvary Chapel movement and all, I was privileged to sit under his teaching for a number of years. And one of the things that he said, and, and I absolutely agree with the statement, he says the primary purpose of the church is not to convert sinners to Christianity, but to perfect, to complete and mature, that's what perfect means, the saints for the ministry and edification of the body. Yes, are we evangelical? Of course we are. Uh, and, and, and that's part of it. But the primary function of the church is to equip the saints. That's why Paul goes into these four offices. Each of these four offices, as you'll notice, are offices where the people speak God's word to God's people. Each of these, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. So, it says he himself gave here that Jesus establishes these four, not five, offices. Uh, and the reason I say that is pastors and teachers in the original, uh, they didn't have a hyphen in Greek, but it is a hyphenated statement. It says pastor teachers. In other words, my son is a really good Bible teacher. Got two boys that are Bible teachers. One's a pastor, one's not. You can be a pastor, you can be a teacher of God's word, and many are, and not be called to pastoral ministry. But I don't believe you can be called to pastoral ministry and not be gifted to teach. Uh, it, it doesn't work that way. It's a hyphenated thing here. And that's intentional. It's by the Holy Spirit. So these are four offices, not five, as some claim, of church leadership. And that Jesus is the one who appoints them. He himself gave some as apostles and so on. The desired goal of God's work through church leadership and the equipping that comes about, as far as the equipping of the saints goes, the goal is listed here in verses 13 to 16. I'm going to read through it. We'll come back again. We'll come back next week and unpack these more because there's a specific message I believe I want that God wants to give to the church today. Verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith. Now, remember, unity is what this chapter is about. He's talking about being unified. And we've looked at the fact that he gifts us differently according to his will, that there is diversity in unity. Looked at last week, the difference between unity and uniformity. He doesn't call us to uniformity. We can be very different, and we are. 
And we err if we decided to divide with our brother or sister over minor issues. And yet we are called to come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. That's why we study God's word here. By the trickery of men, but in the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. We'll look at that, how we have different functions, but we form the whole and he's the head. According to the effective working by which every part does its share, causing growth of the body for the edifying, again, the building up of itself in love. Within that context, as I mentioned, I, I, I sat yesterday morning in prayer about the message today, and I just sensed the Holy Spirit just landed on me in, in a sense I was very stirred up. I've been very concerned. I've been grieved as I look out and I see the things that are going on in our world, as many of you are. You look at these things and you say, what does this mean? Where is it going? What's happening around us? Every day when I get up, there's something new, some new inroad into this darkness that's covering our land. And, and I began to, I, I told Stacy, I went downstairs to take a break at one point and I said, man, I just... I just started to get teared up. I, I was just moved. The Holy Spirit was just dealing with me. And then he began to open his word in some ways that I was able to see some things that I haven't looked at in a while. As I began to look at, well, okay, what, how, what am I going to title this message? What occurred to me is that what we're seeing, what we're witnessing is a gathering storm. And, and there's an evil, there's a darkness that is intensifying and, and coming upon our land, coming upon our planet. And I believe it's orchestrated, highly orchestrated and organized. It may look random, but it's not. Because we know that man is not at the front of all of that. With the powers of darkness, as we've looked at here. Interesting, as I was looking at this, and I thought, yeah, a gathering storm is a good title. I was going to talk about being perilous times. And I told Stacy, I said, I already did a study called that, so we'll <laughs> have a new title. At any rate, I started looking around, and, I, and there's a book that came out this month uh, by a guy by the name of Ar, uh, Albert Moeller, Jr. He's the, the head of Southern Seminary, and, and this is one of the excerpts from that book. I have not read it, so I, I'm not reviewing it. I'm not telling you it's good, but it sounds good, uh, called The Gathering Storm. He says, a storm is coming. Western civilization and the Christian church stand at a moment in great danger. The storm is a battle of ideas that will determine the future of Western civilization and the soul of the Christian church. The forces we must fight are ideologies, policies, and worldviews that are deeply established among intellectual elites, the political class, and our schools. More menacingly, these ideas have also invaded the Christian church. So as I look at what is it to build up and edify the body of Christ, part of what God has called me to, the ministry that I have, is to be able to speak forth God's word. And I believe that what I'm going to give you is a relevant word for today. These things that are coming upon us are not things that are new. 
There are things that are, have happened before. And we're going to look at that. The Apostle Paul speaks prophetically in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. He talks about these days. He says, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Folks, it's not rocket science to look at the news and to see these things being played out. To see the arrogance, the, just the, the blatant arrogance of those who are foisting these things upon our society and upon the church. It won't take much. Look at how quickly these things came about. Look at how quickly. Four months ago, we were just gathering as a church, going along every Sunday, doing our thing, and you know, living for the Lord, God willing, through the week and all of that. And everything got turned on its head. And then as I thought we were beginning to ease out of it, all of a sudden this other stuff started to just erupt. And, and it's grievous. It grieves my soul. It grieves my spirit. I look out and I just think, Lord, how long? What is going on here? What is happening in our society? And I believe that as I was pondering these things yesterday, that the Lord directed me to the, the 11th chapter of Jeremiah. We're going to spend time in, in chapter 12. But I want to look at Jeremiah. His ministry was, uh, was active from the 13th year of Josiah, the king of Judah. That was about 626 BC until after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of Solomon's temple in 587. This period spanned the reigns of five kings of Judah, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Josiah was the only good king. After that, what Jeremiah saw was the steady decay of their entire culture. Not just the religious culture, not just Jewish culture, but their, their culture in general, that it went into decay, that there was just nothing but garbage that was coming upon the people because they were into garbage. They were into false worship. They were into false gods. They were into doing anything that had to do with staying away from Jehovah. With a notable exception to the righteous remnant, we see that in God's word. I believe the church has that as well today. It's always been the case with the people of God. The whole nation had gone headlong into rebellion against God. In Jeremiah's day, Yahweh had become extremely unpopular in their culture. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to know about this God stuff. Don't you give me that. Those who did invoke his name promoted a false spirituality. Things were in bad shape back then. We're talking 2,700 years ago. Open rebellion towards God, false worship permeated the land. In Jeremiah chapter 11, God warns through Jeremiah that he's about to pour out judgment upon the nation because, quote, their gods are as numerous as their cities, lowercase g, gods, that they're worshiping anything and everything but the true God. And look at our culture, our, 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 our society today, and the things that people worship, the things that have captivated people's hearts, anything but the true God. 
For many, their God is social media. For many, it's their political agenda or ideology. For many, it's anything to do with whatever it is that sets itself against God. For many, a false profession of God. As I mentioned, these things have permeated. They've infiltrated the church. False worship is abounding. Worshiping a God of people's own making is commonplace in what used to be Christian churches. I refuse to call them even churches anymore. They'd broken the covenant that God had imposed upon them and given them through which they could relate to God, have a relationship with him. Jeremiah was dealing in his own life, he was dealing with unrest and treachery among his own community and family in a, in a, a, a town called Anathoth. It was a little bit northeast of Jerusalem. And it was his hometown. And, and God had revealed to him that they, his brothers, his neighbors, were conspiring to destroy him. Why? Because he continually spoke against their idolatry. You've got to remember, Jeremiah was a, a prophet for 45, 46 years, and he had no fruit. How'd you like that ministry? Just to give him what I've given you to give him, Jeremiah, go out there and do it. And he does it. And, and for years and decades, people say, oh, I don't want to hear it. Don't give me that. Oh, get out of here, Jeremiah. Forget that Yahweh, that Jehovah's. I don't want to hear it. He had continually spoken against their idolatry and they hated it. The chapter ends with these words. In Jeremiah 11, verse 21 We read, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life, saying, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord so that you will not die at our hand. Jeremiah, you want to keep talking about God? We're going to take your life. And that was the warning that they gave him. They said, stop speaking for God and live. Essentially, verse 22, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, God answering that, behold, I'm about to punish them. The young men will die by the sword. Their sons and daughters will die of famine. And a remnant will not be left to them. For I will bring disaster on the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. Not the day of their punishment, but they will endure punishment for the things that the godless things that they've done. And for coming against the Lord's anointed one in the land. Jeremiah. Interesting, if you read the book of Jeremiah, the the book of Lamentations, you see that Jeremiah publicly, he was a bold man. When God anointed a prophet in the land, he called them to be his mouthpiece and they walked right into the middle of the, 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 in the middle of the fray and they just started speaking what God had given them. But you also see Jeremiah as a very sensitive man. I believe that he was broken, privately, he was broken before God. He looked out and he saw the horrible things that were going on. He endured the afflictions that came to him personally. He saw what was happening to his countrymen. He saw what was happening to the people of God. And that he was broken over it. God assures his servant that his enemies would be dealt with when the day of disaster came. When the Babylonians would come and sack Jerusalem. Destroy Solomon's temple. And take the people off into captivity. This is the backs, the backdrop. This is the scene within which Jeremiah comes and asks the Lord an honest question. Which, and it's a question that's been asked innumerable times over centuries and millennia. Jeremiah chapter 12 verse 1 
Jeremiah says, righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? Lord, why? Why is it that it, 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 it looks like on the outside, Lord, I, I know that you're righteous. I know that you're just. I know that you're true. I'm not calling you on the carpet. And Jeremiah is not calling God on the carpet in this, but he has a reasonable question. Why does it look like we're losing? Why does it look like things are in such decline and you're not intervening here? It sure looks bad. I've asked myself the same question in recent weeks, recent months. Lord, it's getting darker out there. I find myself uttering that word Maranatha that we find at the end of 1 Corinthians. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Had some friends over the other night I was talking about how I want to, I'm going to be faithful to the ministry God's given me for all of the days that he gives me. And yet it's kind of like, have you ever been on a long vacation? I used to take longer trips when I had the money to do that, but I would take you know, three or four weeks off and I would go off somewhere towards the end of that time. I would just start to look towards home. It's like, yeah, I, I've been having a good time. I'm doing this. I'm having this whole good thing going here, but, but I'm just starting to long for home. And in my soul, I feel that way about, I, I'm not going to hasten the day. That, God forbid, that's, that's just stupid. <laughs> but the point is, is that I, I want to fulfill my ministry. I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And, and my heart has begun to long for that, long for home. I want to be, home, to be present with the Lord. It, it just be just unbelievably wonderful. Paul says to be absent from the bodies, to be present from the Lord. He says to live as Christ, to die as gain. He was longing for a home. And I think that that's not an unhealthy thing. The point here, and Jeremiah here, he's, he's trying to figure out, he doesn't understand why a holy God would allow these false prophets, these false priests, the unfaithful ones to prosper in their ministries while he, a faithful servant of God, was treated like the sacrificial lamb. That's the term that's used in chapter 11. Many in God's word have asked the same question. Many, there have been times where I say, Lord, I don't understand this. I don't get it. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why is it that I turn on my television, I see people tearing down statues and killing policemen and doing all this craziness in the name of unity? Are you, are you serious? How is it that they're prospering? How is it that they're getting away with taking over part of a city? How is it that these things are going on? Lord, how long? Job, chapter 12, chapter 21. Job asked that question. The psalmist in Psalm 37, Psalm 49, Psalm 73 asked the question, how long, Lord? Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Habakkuk, chapter 1, Malachi, chapter 2, chapter 3. This question is throughout God's word. It's never directly solved. It's never directly asked or addressed in God's word anywhere in scripture. It's worth noting that the wicked that Jeremiah refers to here are not just those of Anathoth, but the wicked in general. Why does the way of the wicked in general prosper? He acknowledges God's righteousness. 
but he doesn't understand the problem of the prosperity of the wicked in light of God's righteousness. It's not solved. Jeremiah thus, he's not calling God unjust. He's rather trying to reconcile the things that he sees all around with the righteousness and the holiness and the justice of God. We can fall into that place too. We, we look around and say, Lord, I know you're good. I know that you're ultimately working good. I know that your purposes are being accomplished. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. It's like a stream of water. He steers it where he wishes. Absolutely true. Verse two, he says, you've planted them. Yes, they've taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You're near in their mouth, but far from their mind. And he uses the figure of a growing fruit-bearing tree here. He's saying it's not just planted, it's growing. It's not just growing, it's bearing fruit. These things are going on, they're continuing. And I see the, the people, the way of the wicked is not just prospering, but they're growing and they're getting more momentum. They're getting bigger. And they have ungodly fruit and it seems to be multiplying. These injustices are continuing to grow. Again, look around. The growing injustice, the darkness is coming upon our land. Remember, Jeremiah lived through the reign of five different kings and the darkness grew through the four that were godless through his ministry. He sees their naked hypocrisy. Isaiah makes the same observation. In Isaiah chapter 29, uh, it says the Lord said, inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, they've removed their hearts far from me. I see that often in the church. I see where people are pursuing material wealth and thinking that that's God's purpose in their life is to bless them with, with prosperity. I see people pursuing God as, as somebody that he's not represented as in his word. And they're doing it without regard for his word. They're doing it because somebody told them that's how God is rather than check it out here. It's tragic. It's horrible. People are biblically illiterate on purpose. It's called willful ignorance. And it shouldn't be so. Verse 3, Jeremiah says, But you, O Lord, know me. You've seen me. You've tested my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. Jeremiah here, he's contrasting his heart with that of the wicked. I love waking up in the morning knowing whose team I'm on. That's what Jeremiah is saying here. He also knew that vengeance belongs to God. These are not things we take into our own hands, as I mentioned. It's not to us. The church never is used as an instrument for judgment. You look at it, you'll see where God used Israel frequently in the Old Testament, and he used other nations against Israel frequently. There's not one instance where the church is used as an instrument for judgment in God's hand. That's not what we're called to. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so what Jeremiah is doing here, he's calling upon God to avenge the wrongs that are happening to him. He's asking God, he's he's treating these people as though they were the same sacrificial animals that they used to atone for the sins of the people. He's asking God to do the the, the avenging there. Verse four, how long will the land mourn 
and the herbs of every field wither. The beasts and the birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said, he will not see our final end. Significant. In verse four, the first two words, how long? That's where my speech in my prayers to God yesterday as this message was being, this burden was placed upon my heart to speak this. I say, how long, Lord? How long? My soul is grieved. I look and I see what's going on around us. I see what's happening in your church. I see what's happening in our society. I see what's happening in our government. I see the corruption all around. How long? Jeremiah sees the godlessness all around himself as a curse to the entire nation. And that applies to us. Everyone is suffering in the drought and the famine that Jeremiah speaks of here. He's talking about drought. He's talking about famine. Everyone is suffering. They're mocking God. They're saying, he'll not see our final end. Peter talks about that. He says, you know, that that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking and they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? Everything's just continued from the beginning of creation until now. And, And Peter's response to that is God is not slack concerning his promise, but he's patient towards you, not wanting for any to perish. That's what these people were headed for. That's what we are headed for. But that all would come to repentance and have eternal life. And if you're watching online this morning, and you don't know Christ, I know this is a strong message. We'll talk about the love of God as we get to the end of our message this morning and give you an opportunity to take care of that because there is sense to be made out of these circumstances. The wicked mock bringing judgment on the land. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Listen to this. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The people were suffering. The people of God were suffering right alongside the people in Jeremiah's day because of the calamity that was coming upon the land because of the people's sin. Verse 5, he says, and, and, and this is getting to the point of where God now is beginning to answer Jeremiah's question. He doesn't answer it directly. But his answer is powerful and profound. He says, if you've run with the footmen, Jeremiah, this is God speaking. If you've run with the footmen and they've wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? You know, I used to look at this as a mild rebuke to Jeremiah, but I've come to realize that going through this in context, God is giving Jeremiah instruction. He is building him up. That's where this, this totally relates to where we're at in Ephesians. He is equipping Jeremiah now for the tasks at hand. Without directly answering his question, God encourages Jeremiah to regard his present challenge as a preparation for greater challenges to come. That's why he's saying, if you can't, if you're not running with the footman, what's going to happen when the horses show up, Jeremiah? The foot race had not been insignificant. God's not downplaying that. But folks, in our days, we're dealing with spiritual, emotional, mental, and God forbid, physical ramifications of the days within which we live currently. 
And God's telling Jeremiah, if you think Anathoth was tough, what are you going to do when you get to Jerusalem? He's letting Jeremiah know. And you know, I, I love feel-good messages. And this is a feel-good message from the standpoint of knowing that my life is in the palm of God's hand. But he's telling Jeremiah, you know, these things are coming about and you're seeing them and you're rightly discerning them. And oh, by the way, it's going to get worse. And when it does, I want you to be ready. I want you to be equipped. I want you to be prepared. These are not days to mess around with your walk with the Lord. They're just not. There's too much at stake. He says, Jeremiah, you can expect to run with horses in the future. From there, Jeremiah, it's interesting. If you look at his life in chapter 20, that he'd be confined in a cistern. In, in chapter 38, imprisoned. <laughs> it, it, he, he went through it. It got worse for him, as God had told him. The troubles he was having in Anathoth were nothing compared to the troubles he would have later in Jerusalem, and then when he was carted off to Babylon, and then later towards the end of his life in Egypt. God is saying, look, this is for you to notice, to take note of, and to understand I'm preparing you. The rest of verse 5 supports that as well. He says, and if in a land of peace in which you trusted, they wearied you, how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? God is telling Jeremiah that compared with the trials and challenges to come, this is a land of peace. It wasn't a land of peace. He's saying, if you lie down in a land of peace, what are you going to do when the real battle comes? It wasn't a land of peace, but by comparison, to make a point with him, he's saying, it's as though this was the peaceful time when things really get rolling and things get tough. I want you to be prepared. He says, what are you going to do in the real battle? This illustrates the challenges of present circumstances, which are formidable, contrasted to the greater challenges to come. That is God's point. It's a point of equipping. It's a point of building Jeremiah up so that he's prepared for when these things come about. The point in all of this is if you're overwhelmed about the things God is showing you today, you may lack the spiritual strength that comes to grip to come to grips with what he wants to show you or what you go through next. Very important. Verse six, he says, for even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Don't believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you, Jeremiah. Persecution comes in many forms. And in many degrees, sometimes it's light persecution. Somebody gets mad at you and yells at you. I used to think that was persecution as a young Christian. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and I began to realize that not everybody's going to pat me on the head when they find out I'm a Christian, especially if I'm speaking for God. But what are you going to do when the floodplain of the Jordan? What are you going to do when the horses are there? That's God's point in all of this. It's wonderful that he loves Jeremiah enough to tell him, look, I know it's tough. And it very easily could get tougher. And I'm not trying to sound like a prophet of doom here. I know this is a strong message, but it's one that is relevant for the church today. We need to understand, to discern the signs of the times. 
The challenge to Jeremiah was the men of Anathoth. The greater challenge was the multitude, the mob, heard that word a lot lately, that they called after him. They actually, they incited a riot against this guy. They called a mob, a multitude after him to take his life. Their open hostility towards Jeremiah was one thing. Still another is God's warning to be careful with their deception and their flattering words. It doesn't always come through frontal assault. Sometimes it comes through deception. We saw that in Ephesians. The flattering words, the the smooth talk, the deception. As we look at this, I want to look at four things as we wrap up and, and apply this to our lives. The first is wise up. Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 are this. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless or gentle or innocent, depending on your translation, as doves. Be wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. We're to be circumspect. The word circumspect, I love that Bible word. What it means is to inspect in a circle, to look all around, to look at the whole picture. We're to be circumspect in our dealings in this world. We're to be looking around. We're to be looking at where the snares are that the enemy has perhaps laid for us. Wise up. Be wise. Study God's word. Allow the wisdom that comes from the understanding that he gives through his word to permeate your soul to where when that stuff happens, you know where it's coming from and you're not duped or deceived. So wise up. The second thing here is look up. In Matthew chapter 16, the Pharisees, the Sadducees came. They were, they were trying, always trying to trip Jesus up. They were testing him and asked him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and he said to them, when it's evening, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Then he says, hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Folks, we discern the signs of the times through the lens of God's word. Not just knowing it, but applying it. So wise up, look up, discern the signs of the times. Look around. Understand these are not unrelated things that are going on in our world. These are things that are, again, they're highly orchestrated. We battle not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities and rulers of darkness in heavenly places. The people that are foisting these things upon us are pawns for the evil one. Discern the signs. Look up. Jesus says, when you see these things coming about, it's not the end. But look up, for your redemption draws near. The third thing here, sober up. And I'm not talking about alcohol. Acknowledge that the days are evil. And stop trying to live like they're not. Where is the promise of his coming? 
Everything's continued just as it was. It's no big deal. Yeah, I went to Bible study today. That was good. What's for lunch? Sober up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says, become sober-minded as you ought. In other words, that's your responsibility to be sober-minded. Stop sinning. If you're engaged in sin, in habitual sin, I'm not talking about you blow it and all of that. We, we do that. But I'm talking about habitual, life-dominating sin. If you're engaged in that, stop it. Repent. Ask God to forgive you. Get right with him. You don't want to be on the other side of this in these days, in any days, or in any time. And yet it is so important now to be walking rightly with the Lord. He says, be sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning for some have no knowledge of God. You've blown your witness. That's what he's saying here. I speak this to your shame, he says. This is not the time for you to be living marginally for Christ. You're either in or you're not. There's no fence in the kingdom. You are part of his kingdom or you are not. You are walking with him or you are not. You are in sin or you are repentant. One or the other. You can't have both. Trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom will never work. I liken that to trying to stand. Have you ever gotten one foot in a boat? That just that moment of, oh, you know, I'm going to lose it. It's like trying to live like that with one foot on the pier and one foot in the boat. You are not going to be stable. James talks about that. He says, let not the, the double-minded man expect that he's going to be receiving anything from God. He will be unstable in all of his ways. Don't do it. Sober up. It's not the time. The last thing, lighten up. Got to end with something positive. No, seriously though, lighten up. Don't fall prey to the fear of man. That was happening to Jeremiah. These guys were, man, they, they want to kill me. God, could, would you just get them first <laughs> so they can't succeed? Don't fall prey to the fear of man. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak it in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach it on the housetops. Folks, I could not not give this message this morning. It was just such a strong compulsion in me to just say, look, God's word has the answers. God's word addresses these things. This stuff happened 2,700 years ago, and it looked just like what we're looking at today. And there are answers in his word. He says, and don't fear those, Matthew 10, 28. He says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. Don't sweat it. Lighten up. The worst that's going to happen here is some tragedy is going to befall me and I'm going to wake up in my father's presence to live as Christ, to die as gain. Are you overwhelmed by the circumstances that we see around us? By the world tilting off its axis and going absolutely nuts? Is it fearful for you? 
Is it bewildering to you? That's our flesh. That's that old nature that wants to grab a hold of it and worry. Do I have concerns? Of course I do. I have concerns for my kids. I have concerns for my wife. Yes. Am I fearful? No. Sometimes fear grips my heart, and yet I take it to the Lord, and I say, Lord, take this. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, says this. He says, come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavily laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You don't have to be weighted down by the things that you see. Yes, is there a serious aspect to this? Of course there is. But as children of the king, not one thing happens. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground outside of his will. That's what he says. When, when my heart is troubled, when my heart is overwhelmed, when my heart is burdened, he says, come. Give me your burdens. I'll take them. If you don't know the Lord this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never transacted with him as far as your eternal disposition, it's a very simple thing to take care of. Perhaps your heart is overwhelmed. Perhaps you are burdened. Perhaps you're fearful. Perhaps you don't know what to think, what to make of these things. And the things in this message make sense. That's not me. That's the Spirit of God knocking on the door of your heart. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to just pray a simple prayer. Something like, God, I know I've lived my life away from you. I know that my life has It's just not working. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to think. Perhaps you're dealing with the loss of work or you're dealing with financial issues or you're dealing with other things and seeing all of this on top of that. Perhaps you feel like you're trying to figure out how to run with the footman and the horses are coming. A simple prayer, as I mentioned, I've lived my life away from you and I'm turning from the old life. The Bible word for that is repentance. And it means to simply to turn. And I'm embracing you, Jesus. And I want to give you my heart. I'm going to give you my life. Because what he guarantees in that is you give him your broken, dented up, screwed up, messed up life. And he'll give you his. He will indwell you with his Holy Spirit. And he'll bring meaning, understanding, depth, and true love to a life that's broken. He's in the business of not not fixing up your old life, but replacing it with something infinitely better. If that's you, I want to encourage you, my friend, give your life to Jesus. As we look at these things, as we look at God's word, we see that these are not things which are new. They are definitely new to us. And as we, as we discern the signs of the times, folks, don't be overwhelmed by it. Understand that God sees it. He's patient. 
But he does see and he will judge in his time, in his way. I look for the day when we no longer are in the last days, but we're in the end times. There's a difference. We are in the last days. And I, I, so often I think, man, we're just right up against midnight. The, the clock's going to toll. And yet, as I mentioned, I, I just, uh, come Lord Jesus, come, wrap this thing up, take us to heaven, take us to be with you forever. That's the promise of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word, for this example from the life of the prophet Jeremiah that when he looked around and saw everything falling apart, that he was able to draw near to you, to find answers, to have you speak to him. And Lord, we know that in greater measure, having now being on this side of the cross where Jesus is atone for our sins, that we can experience your touch, your hand, your voice in our lives in greater measure. And so, Father, speak to us. Help us to be people who are prepared that when things look bad, according to your word, they could be worse, and that we would be equipped, prepared to deal in that evil day. Lord, we pray for our nation We pray for our leaders that they would stand up for righteousness and justice and truth, that you would stop the corruption. Lord, we pray for our culture, our society, for people that are looking for answers in every place but you. I'm reminded, Lord, of of Jesus looking out over the multitude. Whenever he did, your word says that he was filled with compassion, that they were as sheep without a shepherd. So Lord, let us be compassionate towards those who are just lost. That we would be able to extend the love of Christ regardless of how they come against us. And that it would be for your glory and for your kingdom and for the sake of righteousness. We give our hearts afresh to you, Lord. We pray, stir us up to love and good works that we could bring glory to our Father in heaven. In Jesus' precious name.